necessarily reflect the official policy or position of my fabulous sponsors or advertisers. Any content provided by our bloggers or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. This disclaimer was provided by DisclaimerTemplate.com. Okay, (laughs) y'all. This is as the massage table turns. (laughs) This is as the massage table turns. I couldn't help it, y'all. I have to. (laughs) I don't have any sense. And I'm too old to get any. (laughs) So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be right back and I'll just jump into you know what y'all know what I'm gonna do I'm just gonna read it when I get back (laughs) yeah I love y'all for listening (laughs) I know I'm silly I'm so silly I'm just so silly I can't help it today is one of those days what is it it's Tuesday it's my day off I got time I'll be right back (laughs) Okay, y'all, y'all know I don't have no sense and I have no intention of getting any either. But on my last episode of Just Miss Rose, I read the prologue to White Rage. I got the free sample. But I can't help it. It's White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide by Carol Anderson. So um, I read the prologue entitled Kindling on Jasmine's Rose. But I have decided I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read because I got the free sample so it does include chapter one. So what I'm going to do for this episode of As the Massage Table Turns (laughs) is I'm going to read um, until I get tired of reading. Well, I'm not going to read the entire... Well, okay, I might read chapter one. The whole chapter one, I don't know. But we're going to read enough to get you to want to read it too. Okay, now, one, reconstructing reconstruction. James Madison called it America's original sin, chattel slavery. Its horrors, Thomas Jefferson prophesied, would bring down a wrath of biblical proportions. Indeed, Jefferson wrote, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. In 1861, the day of reckoning came. The southern states' determination to establish their independent slave republic led to four years of war, 1.5 million casualties, including at least 620,000 deaths 
and 20% of southern white males wiped off the face of the earth. In his second inaugural address in 1865, Abraham Lincoln agonized that the carnage of this war was God's punishment for all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil. Over time, the road to atonement revealed itself. In addition to civil war, there would be the Emancipation Proclamation, three separate constitutional amendments, one that abolished slavery, another that defined citizenship, and the other that protected the right to vote. And finally, the Freedmen's Bureau, with its mandate to provide land and education. Redemption for the country's sin, therefore, will require not just the end of slavery, but also the recognition of full citizenship for African Americans, the right to vote, an economic basis to ensure freedom, and high-quality schools to break the generational chains of enforced ignorance and subjugation. America was at the crossroads between its slaveholding past and the possibility of a truly inclusive, vibrant democracy. The four-year war played out on battlefield after battlefield on an unimaginable scale had left the United States reeling. Beyond the enormous loss of life to contend with, more than one million disabled ex-soldiers were adrift, not to mention the widows seeking support from a rickety and virtually non-existent veterans' pension system. The mangled sinews of of commerce only added to the despair, with railroad tracks torn apart, fields fallow, hardened and barren, and bridges that had once defied the physics of uncrossable rivers now destroyed. And then this, millions of black people who had been treated as no more than mere property, were now demanding their full rights of citizenship. To face these challenges and make this nation anew required a special brand of political leadership. Could the slaughter of more than 600,000 men, the reduction of cities to smoldering rubble, and casualties totaling nearly 5% of the U.S. population provoke America's come-to-Jesus moment? Could white Americans override the continuing repugnance, even dread, of living among black people as equals, as citizens, and not property? 
In the process of rebuilding after the Civil War, what political leaders have the clarity, humanity, and resolve to move the United States away from the radicalized policies that had brought the nation to the edge of apocalypse? Initially, it appeared so. Even before the war ended in late 1863 and early 1864, Representative James M. Ashley, Republican, Ohio, and Senator John Henderson, Democrat, Missouri, introduced in Congress a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery. The 13th Amendment was, in important ways, revolutionary. Immediately, it moved responsibility for enforcement and protection of civil rights from the states to the federal government and sent a strong, powerful signal that citizens were first and foremost U.S. citizens. The 13th Amendment was also a corrective and an antidote for a constitution whose slave-owning drafters like Thomas Jefferson were overwhelmingly concerned with states' rights. Finally, the amendment sought to give real meaning to we hold these truths to be self-evident by banning not just government-sponsored but also private agreements that exposed blacks to extra-legal violence and widespread discrimination in housing, education, and employment. As then-Congressman James A. Garfield remarked, the 13th Amendment was designed to do significantly more than confer the bare privilege of not being chained. That momentum toward real freedom and democracy, however, soon enough hit a wall, one that would be more than any statesman was equipped to overcome. Indeed, for all the saintness of his legacy as the great emancipator, Lincoln himself had neither the clarity, the humanity, nor the resolve necessary to fix what was so fundamentally broken. Nor did his successor. And as Reconstruction wore on, the U.S. Supreme Court also stepped in to halt the progress that so many had hoped and worked for. Lincoln had shown his hand early in the war, heavily heavily influenced by two of his intellectual heroes, Thomas Jefferson, who advocated expulsion of blacks from the United States in order to save the nation, and Kentuckian Henry Clay, who had established the American Colonization Society, which had moved thousands of free blacks into what is now Liberia. Lincoln soon laid out his own resettlement plans. He had selected Syracuse, a a resource-poor area in what is now Panama, to be the new home for millions of African Americans. We'll be right back.
Lincoln soon laid out his own resettlement plans. He had selected Syracuse, a resource-poor area in what is now Panama, to be the new home for millions of African Americans. Lincoln just had to convince them to leave. In August 1862, he lectured five black leaders whom he had summoned to the White House that it was their duty, given what their people had done to the United States, to accept the exodus to South America, telling them, but for your race among us, there could not be war. As to just how and why your race came to be among us, Lincoln conveniently ignored. His framing of the issue not only absolved plantation owners and their political allies of responsibility for launching this war, but it also signaled the power of racism over patriotism. Lincoln's anger in 1862 was directed at blacks who fully supported the Union and did not want to leave the United States of America. Many, indeed, would exclaim that, despite slavery and enforced poverty, we will work, pray, live, and, if need be, die for the Union. Nevertheless, he cast them as the enemy for wickedly dividing us instead of defining as traitors those who had fired on Fort Sumter and worked feverishly to get the British and French to join in the attack to destroy the United States. From this perspective flowed Lincoln's lack of clarity about the purpose and cause of the war. While the president and then his successor, Andrew Johnson, insisted that the past four years had been all about preserving the Union, the Confederacy operated under no such illusions. Confederate States of America, CSA, Vice President Alexander H. Stevens remarked, What did we go to war for but to protect our property? This was a war about slavery, about a region's determination to keep millions of black people in bondage from generation to generation. Mississippi's Articles of Secession stated unequivocally, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. In fact, two-thirds of the wealthiest Americans at the time lived in the slaveholding South. 81% of South Carolina's wealth was directly tied to owning human beings. It is no wonder then that South Carolina was willing to do whatever it took, including firing the first shot in the bloodiest war in U.S. history 
to be free from Washington, which had stopped the spread of slavery to the West, refused to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, and with the admission of new free soil states to the Union prior to 1861, set up the numerical domination of the South in Congress. When the Confederacy declared that the first duty of the Southern states was self-preservation, what it meant was the preservation of slavery. To cast the war as something else, as Lincoln did, to shroud that hard, cold reality under the cloak of preserving the Union, would would not and could not address the root causes of the war and the toll that centuries of slavery had wrought. And that failure of clarity led to a failure of humanity. Frederick Douglass later charged that in the hurry and confusion of the hour and the eagerness to have the Union restored, there was more care for the sublime superstructure of the Republic than for the solid foundation upon which it alone could be upheld. The full rights of the formerly enslaved people. Millions of enslaved people and their ancestors had built the enormous wealth of the United States. Indeed, in 1860, 80% of the nation's gross national product was tied to slavery. Yet, in return, for nearly 250 years of toil, African Americans had received nothing but rape, whippings, murder, the dismemberment of families, and forced subjugation, illiteracy, and abject poverty. The quest to break the chains was clear. As black residents in Tennessee explained in January 1865, we claim freedom as our natural right and ask that in harmony and cooperation with the nation at large, you should cut up by the roots the system of slavery, which is not only a wrong to us, but the source of all the evil which at present afflicts the state. For slavery corrupt itself, corrupted nearly all also around it, so that it has influenced nearly all the slave states to rebel against the federal government in order to set up a government of pirates under which slavery might be perpetuated. The drive to be free meant that 1,700, I'm sorry, the drive to be free meant that 179,000 soldiers. 10% of the Union Army and an additional 19,000 in the Navy were African Americans. Humanity, therefore, cried out to honor the sacrifice and heroism of tens of thousands of black men who had gallantly fought the nation's enemy. 
that military service had to carry with it, they believed, citizenship rights and the dignity that comes from no longer being defined as property or legally inferior. To be truly reborn this way, the United States would have had to overcome not just a Southern, but also a national disdain for African Americans. In New York City, for example, during the 1863 draft riots, black men and black women were attacked, but the rioters singled out the men for special violence. On the waterfront, they hanged William Jones and then burned his body. White dock workers also beat and nearly drowned Charles Jackson, and they beat Jeremiah Robinson to death and threw his body in the river. Rioters also made a sport of mutilating the black men's bodies, sometimes sexually. A group of white men and boys mortally attacked black sailor William Williams, jumping on his chest, plunging a knife into him, smashing his body with stones, while a crowd of men, women, and children watched. None intervened, and when the mob was done with Williams, they cheered, pledging vengeance on every nigger in New York. This violence was simply the most overt, virulent expression of a stream of anti-black sentiment that conscribed the lives of both the free and the enslaved. Every state admitted to the Union since 1819, starting with Maine, embedded in their constitutions discrimination against blacks, especially the denial of the right to vote. In addition, only Massachusetts did not exclude African Americans from juries, and many states, from California to Ohio, prohibited blacks from testifying in court against someone who was white. And that is enough of that. I'm done with this episode of As the Massage Returns. If y'all would like to read White Anger, I suggest you buy it or get it from your local library. I'm going to be getting the whole book, but I'm not going to read it all today. And I'm not going to read it all to you guys. But I do want to thank you for your time. I love you for listening. Have a good one.